right, it is another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live over at Joy620 or you're listening to the podcast at investinghope.com, iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, wherever pod, uh, podcasts are found. You can find this show. We are grateful for your partnership and for listening. we got a lot to talk about today. We're going to talk about some news out of Texas. No surprise, a judge has uh, made a ruling and, and is stopping the law that was put in place there in Texas. Uh, we're going to talk about some su- Supreme Court stuff and look at uh, it, this. Let's see, in December, the Supreme Court is going to take up the case out of Mississippi. It's a big deal. It looks like it's the first time in a long time, really probably since 1992, that we have a chance at seeing Roe possibly overturned, at the very least uh, seeing some big shifts in the abortion uh, discussion. And there's a piece that I want to read to you and kind of walk through that, that really goes into detail about where we think the votes are at the, at this moment. And, and the, the author of that piece does a good job of looking back and going, you know, we thought we had the votes in 1992, but they went a different way. Are we in the same place now or do we have the votes? And so we're going to talk about that. We're also going to look at, um, uh, a, a number of different things in, in terms of uh, polling that, that just came out, uh, this past week that, uh, you know, some would say, oh, well, what is, what does the presidential polling have to do with uh, abortion and life? And look, the, the reason I want to bring it to your attention is, is because you're hearing a lot right now of folks say, you know, Joe Biden had received more votes than any president in the history of the, the country. Uh, Donald Trump received the second most votes in the history of the country. And, and so by saying that, they're saying since Joe Biden received so many votes, uh, he has a mandate to push, uh, his agenda. Now, for the longest time, Biden was considered a, a moderate. He's certainly not a moderate today. Uh, and so what we're seeing is they're trying to push the progressive agenda, whether that be a $3.5 trillion, uh, infrastructure bill along with reconciliation and a number of different things, the debt ceiling that they're spending money left and right. Inflation is high. I filled up my, uh, my Wood family church van just the other day for $90, $90. I haven't spent $90 on gas in a long time. Uh, the dollar general come out and said, Hey, we're no longer going to be the dollar general. We're going to be roughly dollar fifty, two dollar general, uh, because they're having to raise prices because of a number of things. Now there's a lot that, that plays into that. But but I want to, when we get to that portion of the show, I want to talk about why these things matter. And when we look at the polling that, that has come out, it, it the president does not have a mandate. He has a slim majority in the Senate, uh, not that big of a majority in the House. And, and so there there isn't the mandate that they're trying to tell us, and the polling proves that to be uh, true. But first, I want to start with uh, an article over at the New York Times that discusses what happened uh, with the Texas abortion ban. So a federal judge on Wednesday uh, of last week granted the Justice Department's request to halt enforcement of the recently passed Texas law that bans nearly all abortions in the state while the legal battle over the statute makes its way through the federal courts. In his 113-page ruling, Robert Pittman, a federal district uh, court judge in Austin, sided with the Biden administration, which had sued to halt a law that changed the landscape of the abortion fight and further fueled the nationwide 
debate over whether abortion will remain legal across the country. Judge Pittman used sharp language to criticize the law known as the Senate Bill 8. Now, notice that the judge is using harsh language to criticize the law. Judge's job is not to uh, uh, write law. Uh, the judge's job is to determine if law is constitutional or not. And this judge, uh, I think, went a little far. Uh, let's see. It said, uh, from the moment SB 8 went into effect, this is what the judge said, women have been unlawfully prevented from exercising control over their own lives in a way that, in ways that are protected by the Constitution. <clears throat> Excuse me. He wrote in his opinion. This court will not sanction one more day of this offensive uh, law of such an important right, he added. Now, now, does that sound like a judge or does that sound like an activist? This court will not sanction one more day of this offensive work of such an important right. Defensive meaning meaning this what he is saying is Texas is taking away an important right from women. Now, now we've had a lot of discussions over the last uh, few weeks and months about rights and, and what we have the right to and what we don't have the right to. But see, abortion is different because abortion is the golden calf. And this judge proved that to be so in an 114-page 100, opinion. The article goes further. It's not yet clear what effect this decision to pause enforcement of the law will have on women in Texas who have scrambled to find abortion providers in other parts of the country. The law's novel legal approach extends to what happens if it is temporarily suspended. Clinics can be sued retroactively. What a, You know, it's a clever law. It really is. Clinics can be sued retroactively for any abortions they provide while it is blocked. That means penalties could be imposed when the suspension is lifted for abortions that happen while it was in place, keeping clinics in a fraught legal environment. Now, listen, I, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Don't be surprised when people, pro-lifers or pro-choicers, get creative in legislation. And this is what we're seeing. The pro-lifers in Texas were like, you know what? We need to get creative. We're going to allow the citizens of this state to sue abortion providers that are providing abortions. And then we have a feeling that some federal court somewhere is going to pause this while it moves up the chain, probably to the Supreme Court. Well, while it's paused, we're going to be allow them to retroactively sue those clinics. I mean, that's creative, folks. That is creative. It, uh, John Sago, who I've actually had on this show a couple years back, is the legislative director for the Texas Right to Life. He said this, SB 8 says, if an injunction is dismissed you are still accountable for abortions you did while you were protected by that injunction. So even though Judge Pittman ruled in favor of the clinics, they expressed hesitation on Wednesday night about when they might resume full activity. Nancy Northup, the president and chief executive of the Center for Reproductive Rights, said in a statement that clinics uh, her group represents, quote, hope to resume full abortion services as soon as they are able even though the threat of being sued retroactively will not be completely gone until SB8 is struck down for good, end quote. Whole Woman's Health, a group that operates four clinics in the state, said in a statement that it was, quote, making plans to resume abortion care up to 18 weeks as soon as possible, end quote. A spokeswoman said she, she did not know precisely when that would be. 
Texas, for its part, notified the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit on Wednesday night that it would appeal the ruling. The court is one of the most conservative in the country. Mr. Sago estimated that decision could come in as soon as few days. Judge Pittman enjoined Texas, or anyone acting on its behalf, from enforcing the law. He also says state court judges and state court clerks who had the power to enforce or administer the law were not to do so. Mr. Sago said that his organization expected Judge Pittman to rule in favor of the clinics, but this, but that his decision to enjoin judges and clerks was a surprise. Uh, Sago said, we expected him to look for a way to do this, but we are astonished. He created a way to enjoin state judges and court staff. In Washington, Attorney General Merrick Garland held the ruling as, quote, a victory for women in Texas and for the rule of law. Go look up Merrick Garland and you'll see his his opinions when it comes to abortion. See, folks, this isn't about constitutionality. This isn't about the law. This isn't about, hey, we want to we want to just stay originalist. We want to look at the Constitution and interpret it the way it says it. No, no, this is an agenda. That's exactly what it is, an agenda. And and they're pushing their agenda through the courts. And so we'll see how it plays out. That's why the Supreme Court is important that we're going to talk about here in a few minutes. Uh, Garland went further and said, It is the foremost responsibility of the Department of Justice to defend the Constitution. Uh, we will continue to protect constitutional rights against all who would seek to undermine them. Now, those constitutional rights... Uh, mainly what they want to do is focus on abortion. When when religious folks want to come out and say, hey, what about our constitutional rights? Yeah, we're told to go kick rocks, especially with people like Merrick Garland. The Texas law bans abortion once cardiac activity can be detected in an embryo, usually after about six weeks of pregnancy. Healthcare experts, notice, notice New York Times, they're using the new language, cardiac activity. Uh, you know, they're not saying heartbeat because that makes people humanize the baby they use embryo they use cardiac activity because well that that doesn't really sound human see they're all in this together and we need to be able to point it out and and pick it out when we're reading through these things Healthcare experts say women may not even know they are pregnant during that time frame and the law makes no exception for pregnancies that are in the, the that are the result of rape or incest. The Justice Department sued Texas last month after the Supreme Court declined to block the law in a 5-4 decision that did not rule on whether the measure and its unorthodox enforcement mechanisms were constitutional. The department then filed an emergency motion requesting an order that would prevent Texas from enforcing the Senate bill while its lawsuit moves through the courts. At the center of the legal debate over the law is its use of private citizens rather than the state's executive branch to enforce the restrictions. Plaintiffs are encouraged to file suit because they recover legal fees as well as $10,000 if they win. Again, creative with that legislation. Judge Pittman said that through its abortion law, Texas has pursued, quote, an unprecedented and aggressive scheme to deprive its citizens of a significant and well-established constitutional right. It's not. It's not. The courts back in 1973 uh, just, just ruled... Out of nowhere. They, they literally pulled it out of their hind end. There is nowhere in the Constitution that says you can have an abortion or that you have a right to an abortion. They just made it up. They just made it up. Go find it. They made it up. It's a terrible ruling. We have people from the left and the right that have said over the years it's a terrible ruling. And yet they just say it's a, it's a right. It's, they say it's a right as much as the First Amendment is a right. 
Abortion is a right as much as the Second Amendment is a right. Abortion is a right as much as the third. No, it's not. It's not. But that's what they say. At a hearing last week to determine whether Judge Pittman would halt enforcement, William T. Thompson, a lawyer for the state of Texas, argued that the Justice Department did not have grounds to argue the case because the law did not harm the federal government. Texas argued that civil suits brought under the new law and heard in Texas state courts were the, quote, proper cases for deciding the constitutionality of the challenge statute, end quote. Few such suits have been filed so far. But the Justice Department argued that Senate Bill 8 directly harms the federal government because it violates the Supremacy Clause, the constitutional principle that federal law takes precedent over state law when a conflict arises between the two. Brian Netter, a lawyer for the Justice Department, also argued that the Justice Department had the right to challenge the law because it effectively deprives a group of citizens of a constitutional right. Abortion gained federal protection in 1973 in the landmark Supreme Court decision Roe v. Wade. Again, it was a bad decision then. It's a bad decision today. But but they're not going to talk about that. Opponents and supporters of the Texas law recognize that it is an enormous shift in the nation's battle over abortion, which has long rested on whether the Supreme Court will overturn Roe. The Supreme Court is soon scheduled to hear another case from Mississippi on a state law restricting access to abortion after 15 weeks. The Texas law essentially allows the state to all but ban abortions before a legal test of that watershed case. If the law is not stopped by the courts, other Republican-led state legislatures could use it as a blueprint. Yes, yes, they could and they will. They will. Wait for it. You know why they will? The same reason New York and Illinois all moved to allow abortion fully through nine months. If it's a constitutional right to allow for abortion, if it's a constitutional right to get an abortion, why did New York and Illinois and all these other places, blue states, move to pass state laws that allowed for abortion up to nine months? Why is that? You, you don't see the, the, the federal courts, you don't see the Department of Justice going, hey, New York, you can't do that. No, what you see in Washington is the Congress going, hey, we need a federal, we need a federal law that says you can have abortions all through the pregnancy. In Illinois, they, they actually removed the rights of an unborn. They completely dehumanized the unborn in their constitution, their state constitution. In New York, if a pregnant woman is, is punched in the stomach and her baby dies, the person is no longer charged with a murder. They dehumanized the baby in New York. And, and no, no federal court is fussing at them. You don't see the judge out of Austin saying, hold on, we can't do this. We need to fight for the rights of people. So we shall see what will happen. There's no surprise to me that, that the judge in Austin made this decision to halt the law there in Texas. I'm glad that Texas knew this was coming and, and still allow people retroactively to, to sue these clinics. So be, be paying attention. We'll talk more about it when we come back. So as we continue the conversation, you know, it's important to understand what happens around abortion. And, and what you're going to find in a lot of these cases is you'll have, uh, obviously the folks on the left, pro-abortion folks are going to go, yeah, we celebrate this judge in, in Texas because he's just, he's just protecting our constitutional rights. But then when, when, uh, a conservative judge makes a ruling 
the folks on the left are like, how dare he? He's not reading the Constitution and he's he's taking away our rights. And so we get into this back and forth. And and then we, we get these long-winded opinions. 114 pages? 114 pages would be needed if you were trying to push an agenda. If it is as easy as saying abortion is a constitutional right, you can't pass this law, why do you need 114 pages? Well, you need 114 pages because you got to push your agenda. You have to let everyone know not only is this law bad, but I got to tell you why it's bad. And then I got to show to all my all the folks on my side that I'm 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 in the fight. I'm with you. Why not just write an opinion that says, "Hey, in 1973, it was passed and and the the courts decided and this is what we're doing." You know, they're not going to do that because they have to try to convince people. And so what in in the convincing of people, they're wrapping it around of, you know, this is making it hard on women and this is a undue burden and and how dare they and they're so awful and I can't believe they did this and 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 they just want to take away our rights. That's not what's happening. Everyone knows that. Like I said, New York can pass a law that allows for abortion up to nine months. And they're celebrated on all the news outlets. Texas passes a law that says, yeah, you can't have one. Sorry. And they're looked at as, uh, in some cases, were actually called the Taliban. If you, if you can believe that. For wanting to protect life. I mean, we're living in an upside down world. Where you're called the Taliban for wanting to protect human life. And New York is called progressive and, and they're the model for everyone when they're literally wanting to kill babies up until nine months of pregnancy. But I'm the crazy one. There's a piece over at the American Mind um, that, that I think is worth your time. It is uh, The title of it is called No New Suitors. <clears throat> and, and it talks about the Supreme Court and the judges on the court and the upcoming Mississippi case that, that they're going to be looking at in December. Uh, it says this, David Souter was nominated and confirmed in 1990 to replace liberal lion Justice William Brennan, a stalwart defender of the living constitution. Now, do you know what the living constitution, living constitution is, is meaning it's not an, I'm not an originalist. I'm not a, I don't just read the constitution and it says what it says. A living constitution means it evolves. It evolves and it can make turns and, and we can make it what we want and it can work out. That's what we see. The A progressive or left-leaning judge believes in the living constitution. A conservative judge, <clears throat> uh, would, would, like Clarence Thomas, would say, it's, I'm an originalist. The constitution says what it says and that's what we go by. Uh, the article continues, before that, Souter spent seven years as a justice of New Hampshire's highest court during which time his views on contentious constitutional questions were not at all illuminated. Thereafter, he was a judge on the U.S. Courts of Appeals for the First Circuit for a mere six months before he was nominated to the Supreme Court of the United States. 
Relative to the controversial Robert H. Bork, who had been rejected by the Senate in 1987, Souter had essentially no paper trail. Now, why is that good? That it's, For a judge, if you don't have a paper trail, when you go to the, the Senate to, to be confirmed, if you don't have a paper trail, you can, you know, they can't point to, well, you ruled this way on that case or you ruled that way on that case. <clears throat> Excuse me. If there's no paper trail, if there's not a, a years and decades of rulings, then, you know, there's not a lot you can do. It is astonishing in retrospect to consider that conservatives saw this thin record as features, not bugs, of Souter's allure. They believed, despite all the evidence, that Souter would provide the decisive fifth vote for a broad counter-revolution in constitutional law. We all know how that turned out. Just two years after joining the court, Justice Souter was part of the 5-4 majority Planned Parenthood of southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey in 1992. Specifically, the three justice plurality, all of whom were Republican appointees, which reaffirmed the core holding of Roe v. Wade in 1973. By the end of Souter's tenure, the rallying cry from the right was, quote, no more suitors. Three decades later, the right to abortion is once again at issue. The court will hear arguments on December 1st in a major abortion case, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, and will issue a decision the following June, just as it did in Casey. Now, as then, Republican-appointed justices comprise a supermajority of the court, 8-1 to one in 1992. Remember that. In, in 1992, Republican appointees, it was 8-1 to one on the court. Today, it's 6-3. to three. Now, as then, whether to uphold Roe is squarely presented. Now, as then, its fate rests in the hands of one road man, Justice Brett Kavanaugh. There is cause for alarm. Mark Twain was right. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And where it should deviate is in the right's response to Roe's survival. If Roe or some Casey-esque uh, mutilated but still standing version of it emerges from the halls of One First Street in June, the conservative legal movement must be repudiated so that something serious and effective can grow amidst the ruins of its broken promises. As Josh Blackman, a law professor at South Texas College of Law, Houston, recently explained, Justices Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Neil Gorsuch, the Thomas Three is what they're coined, have criticized their colleagues, Justices Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, for lacking the, quote, fortitude to overrule controversial precedent in a religious liberty case. Quote, the conservatives implied a similar uh, a similar motive in several other cases, Blackman observed. The Thomas Three will likely be solid in Dobbs, despite Gorsuch's opinion in Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia, in 2020. In an abortion case last year, Gorsuch noted that, quote, the real question before the court concerns our willingness to follow the traditional constraints of the judicial process when a case touching on abortion entered the courtroom, end quote. And he has otherwise been a solid vote on abortion ever since his elevation to the court. It is highly likely that Chief Justice John Roberts, by contrast, will rule wrongly in Dobbs. No morally serious person who understands the nature of courage thinks that Roberts has, since his confirmation to the court in 2005, been keeping his powder dry or building up his political capital with the intention of overruling Roe. Dobbs, I mean, Roberts tends to go the other direction. We know that. He's done that a number of times. The chief justice refused to stick to his own abortion positions. In June, Medical Services LLC versus Russo, a case about whether abortionists 
could be legally required to have admitting privileges at local hospitals that was materially similar to Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstadt of 2016. He wrote, quote, I joined the dissent in Whole Women's Health and continue to believe that the case was wrongly decided. The question today, however, is not whether Whole Women's Health was right or wrong, but whether to adhere to it in the deciding the present case, end quote. Roberts also joined the pro-abortion liberal bloc in the Texas abortion case, which came before the court in an emergency posture in September 2021. In dissent, joined by Justices Stephen Breyer, Breyer and uh, Kagan, he complained that Texas's statutory scheme, which is actually effective at preventing the killing of the unborn, is unprecedented. He concluded by stating that he would preclude enforcement of the law until the courts could weigh in. These incidents are telling. Roberts will not emerge as a hero in Dobbs. Courage is a habit built up over time. If Roberts ever had that muscle, it is long since atrophied. And so the solid row three increases to four. The case of Justice Amy, the dogma lives loudly within you. Barrett is quite different from that of the chief. It's hard to imagine her going soft on Dobbs. That's mean, that means the vote is four to four and the outcome hinges on one justice Kavanaugh. And we'll continue that discussion when we come back. <laughs> it's almost Christmas time. Oh yeah, it's almost Christmas time. I'm a uh, Yeah. I actually as I was leaving the house this morning, my daughter said, "Do you hear Alexa?" and she was playing Christmas music. So I have influenced the children at the Woodhouse to uh, get into the Christmas spirit even though it's going to be like uh, 80s all week. Uh, we are, we're excited about Christmas and you should be excited about Christmas as well. Before the last break, I was, I was talking about a, a piece over at the AmericanMind.org. I highly recommend it to you about the court and the decision that's coming up with the case out of Mississippi. And we're talking about how it, it appears as if maybe the, the deciding vote is going to come down to Justice Kavanaugh. Justice Kavanaugh, the piece says, must not let the siren song of history, the media's hair on fire, hyperventilating threats to pack the court, or the legal academy's pleas when it's not subbing him, lure him into affirming row. There is absolutely no legal, let alone moral, justification for it. No, not even stare decisis. I can profess to understand why Justice Kavanaugh, this is the, the, uh, author of this piece saying, I can't profess to understand why Justice Kavanaugh appears to crave acceptance by the elites. His nice nightmarish confirmation process, process should have spurred him to make it his life mission to make the political left miserable. Uh, it's time to end Rose's sordid half century of mass produced death, which according to the Alabama legislature dwarfs the slaughter of the Holocaust, the Chinese purges, Stalin's gulags, Cambodian killing fields, and the Rwandan genocide combined. The court must no longer be stained red by the blood of nearly 60 million babies. And it falls to Justice Kavanaugh to accomplish this. If he doesn't vote to overturn Roe, if he flinches at this critical moment, the righteous fury of half the country will be unleashed. And a generation of young conservatives will be, irre uh, will be radicalized. This is what the author is saying. Justly aghast at a regime that doesn't just tolerate but celebrates in the name of liberty. A rolling massacre that would make King Herod green with envy. They will ensure that Justice Kavanaugh, if he rules wrongly, will be remembered far more foully than David Souter. To do the right thing, Justice Kavanaugh, in this national nightmare, you'll be a hero to the people who matter if you do. And what, what that article is meaning about radicalized, it, what it, it's the same thing that we talked about 
uh, on this show a number of years. It doesn't mean radicalized in the sense of uh, r- radical terrorism. It means you've spent decades. The establishment has spent decades. Conservative Republican establishment have spent decades telling my generation, telling me, since the since before I could legally vote, if you give us the House, if you give us the Senate, if you give us the Oval Office, we will get you the Supreme Court. And if we get the Supreme Court, guess what? Roe v. Wade will no longer exist. We've been told that since I was a teenager. And even before. And we had the majority in the court each time a case like this came up and we did nothing. That's why it was so hard to get people on board the first time around with Donald Trump. Because we were told, oh, he has a chance of maybe possibly getting three justices on the court. And people were going, yeah, that's fine, but you've had majority on the court before and did nothing. And so the question is, do we have the votes or do we not? I believe we do. I think Justice Kavanaugh is going to do the right thing. Now, we'll see. Who knows? Maybe Roberts will even surprise us. I doubt it, but maybe. Maybe if he sees the writing on the wall, he would want to be a part of the the majority opinion on that. It kind of feels like he puts his finger in there, gets a, d- figures out where the wind is blowing, and uh, you know, since I'm not going to be the deciding vote, I'll go with the majority opinion. We'll see. But but the author of that piece is saying that that there's a generation coming up that that have done everything that they've they've canvassed neighborhoods, they've they've gone door to door for you, they they held phone banks, they they campaigned for you, because you said. If we get the Oval Office and if we get the Senate and we can replace people like uh, Ginsburg and we can replace these liberal judges with conservative judges, we'll take out Roe v. Wade. We'll, we'll, we'll make history. And they've had opportunity after opportunity and they haven't done it. And so at some point, you got to pony up. We've kept our end of the deal. We campaigned for you. We voted for you. We donated money to you. So at some point you gotta, you gotta take up your part of, uh, the deal. And, and, and so we'll see what happens. They're gonna be hearing the case in December and we'll know the ruling in, uh, in June of next year. I now wanna, wanna shift gears a little bit, <clears throat> but it goes in line with this because the, uh, some recent polling coming out about the president. And it's important to look at because, first off, he's been in office less than a year. And uh, things aren't looking great. Yet they would tell you they have a mandate. They can push high spending. They can push high taxes. They can push an abortion agenda. They, they can do all of these things because they have a mandate. But we're finding out they, they really don't have a mandate. And, and obviously conservatives, Republicans are not going to approve of this president, just like uh, liberals and Democrats are not going to approve of a Republican president. But the interesting thing is the numbers when it comes to independents, the numbers when it comes to Hispanics, the numbers when it comes to uh, some of these other folks that they need if they want to win the next election cycle, if they want to keep the majority of the Senate and keep the majority of the House. They, they need these folks to get behind them. But there's a piece over at National Review written by Charles Cook, uh, and it says, One wonders if Joe Biden has noticed 
that Americans just don't seem to like him very much. Yes, 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 they liked him enough to elect him over Donald Trump, but they did so narrowly and without delivering the sizable majorities he clearly believes he deserved. And now that he's president, they seem to deeply, deeply be unimpressed. Per a, a, a Quinnipiac poll released last week, Biden's national approval rating is 38 percent. He has been he's been in office, what, nine months? 38 percent among independents. It's 32 percent. That that's the number we got to talk about. That means only 32 percent of independents approve of the job of the president with 60% disapproving of the job he's doing. 60% of independents say, Hey, it's not going great. Well, if, if I'm running that campaign, if I'm thinking about midterms, if I'm thinking about the Senate and the house, those numbers concern me. Biden is nine points underwater among Hispanics. He's six points underwater among women, and he's polling at only 66% among African-Americans. Earlier this year, Biden argued that Americans should ignore Washington, D.C. and look to the country in general when determining whether he was a uniter (laughs) he promised to be. Now, look, let's be real. At this current moment in time, there's very few, if any, Democrats or Republicans that you would coin a uniter. It's just not they're just not out there. That is not happening. No one really wants to unite because, well, I can't campaign on uniting. I can't raise funds on uniting. It's a lot easier to get people riled up and angry, right? And so that's what you're seeing from both sides. Uh, the White House wants to change how people perceive bipartisanship, arguing that if they put forward proposals that are backed by Republicans and independents, they should be seen as bipartisan, even if GOP lawmakers in Washington don't vote for them. I think we can d- dispense with that idea. Biden's approved disapprove rating is four to ninety four among report uh, among Republicans. Four percent of Republicans approve, ninety four percent disapprove of Joe Biden. It's thirty two sixty among independents and it's eighty ten among Democrats. If Americans in twenty twenty one are united around anything, it's that they disfavor Joe Biden. And how? By a margin of fifty six to forty one. Americans say that Biden lacks leadership skills. By a margin of 54 to 42, Americans say that Biden is incompetent. By a margin of 50 to 44, Americans say that Biden is dishonest. Worse yet, there's no issue on which Biden is doing well. His uh, approved disapprove on COVID-19 is 48.50. On the economy, it's 39.55. On his leadership of the military, it's 37.58. On taxes, 37% of Americans approve, while 54% disapprove. On foreign policy, 34 to 58%. And on immigration, it's startling 25 to 67%. That last number is particularly interesting because if you look at the cross tabs, you see that Biden is underwater on immigration amongst Hispanics by 46 points, 23 to 69. And no, it's not just one poll. It's in the real clear politics average. Biden is at 44% approval the lowest of his presidency thus far, and it's only been nine months. Since the debacle in Afghanistan, Americans have been gradually losing faith in the president in every way that it is possible to lose faith in the president. As Biden gears up to pivot to his absurd, destructive, and thoroughly uncalled-for spending bill, he might do well to stop for a moment and realize that it's not them. After all, it's him. Now, Now, that may seem harsh to some, and to some, you're like, uh, you're preaching to the choir. But, but that's why when, when you go 
And politics is a funny thing. We have politicians that say we have a mandate uh, because of all these votes. We clearly, the, the populace wants me to go this direction. Yet, yeah, clearly not. Clearly not. I mean, we're at a, we're at a really interesting place where even you look, you look back at a number of presidents. I was watching a documentary the other day on President Obama and, and hearing and listening to his speeches. I'm like, man, that's a good speech. It's really well done. Uh, and, and you think back to, okay, that they had a, in, in some cases, they did have a mandate to do some things and, and his approval ratings were up. You look back during uh, George W., the same thing. You look back to President Trump, same thing. Uh, you know, approval numbers, great. People people didn't think he had character. People had some issues with him personally, but in terms of policy, uh, had a lot of support. There's not one policy the current president is is in good shape on, whether it's immigration, whether it's border crisis, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's taxes, whether it's inflation, whether it's COVID-19. I mean, just saw the numbers uh, last week. We have now had more people die of COVID in 2021, and we're only nine months into it, than all of 2020. I mean, this is a tough spot for a, for a president to be in. We'll see what, what shakes out in the election cycles. We'll be back. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am stuck in the so as we finish up today, look, the, the last segment, the, the reason that I wanted to talk about that is, you know, we, we dabble in politics on this show, uh, obviously. If you listen to it, uh, it, it regular at all, you know that I dabble in that. And I try not to go all in. Uh, but, but I do think it's important that we look at uh, these numbers. And, and if, if there were a Republican president, I'd be saying the same thing. That's unsustainable from a political perspective. Just just putting the, all the cards out there from a political perspective, from uh, winning elections, that is unsustainable. You can't be underwater on everything. I mean, if if if, if you're in that camp, you're the chief executive, you're the boss, and you sit down with your advisors and and they look at you and say, "Sir." Ma'am, we, um, the latest polling, and these aren't like Republican push uh, calls. These, these aren't Republican funded polls. These are just polls that we look at. Real clear politics, average, the Quinnipiac, all, all these are just polls that we look at across the board. Uh, you know, they're not partisan. And when, when you have pretty much the media all in your camp, I mean, if you remember last year when, when COVID was, was ramping up, if you turned to CNN, what did you see? You saw a daily ticker of deaths. They had it at the bottom. And of course, no wonder the anxiety is, is up. They had it at the bottom. How many people were dying daily of COVID? We have a new president. We actually have more people dead in 2021. And those tickers are nowhere to be found. So, so when we see these things and we see the media apparatus and the political apparatus all kind of getting behind a, a guy and an agenda and they keep pushing, you know, most votes ever in the history that, which, okay. But then you, then you have these polls. It's not good. It's not a good look. 
mean, if I was in that seat, I'd be going, okay, this is not good. We, we overcorrected. He had an opportunity. This president had an opportunity to, to in January take office and, and say, I've received more votes than in the history of any other president. And I'm going to lead in being a uniter. And he could have said it without, uh, he could have said it and been truthful. And he could have said, we're going to push an infrastructure bill that doesn't cost $3.5 trillion. We're going to stick to around $1.5 trillion, which is still astronomical. He could have, he could have done these things. He could have made some adjustments in Afghanistan. He could have done these things and said, my first act as president was a bipartisan infrastructure bill because Republicans support it too. But instead, they wanted their cake and eat it too. They wanted to go all in on the progressive agenda. And, and Senator Manchin was like, yeah, yeah we're not going to do that. I never once said we'd be okay with that. And so they went all in on the progressive agenda. And now they're looking across the board and going, oh, no, we're, we're underwater in the poll numbers. Now, I don't know what it's going to look like if... The reality is a large segment of Republicans aren't going to come on board with this administration. It's just not going to happen. Just like a large segment of Democrats would never come on board with the Republican president. That's that's normal. So when you see the Republican numbers and the Democratic numbers in those polls, you can almost just throw those out. Now, it is interesting that Democrats 80% approve and 10% disapprove of this president. That's probably because some are are so far left that they're like, he's not left enough. But but even there, you can throw those out. The interesting numbers are the independents, Hispanics, African-Americans, th- these other demographics that, that, that they're going to need in order to win the midterms, in order to win uh, the next presidential election. Now, I don't think Joe Biden's going to run for office again. I, I think they're going to hand it off. I don't think it'll be Harris either. It's going to be interesting to see who they uh, hand the baton to. But but. But we have to look at these things because they're they're going all in on, hey, we need abortion, we need this, we need that. And the, the American populace is going, yeah, that's not why I voted for you. Like the, the suburban women and men that voted for President Biden wasn't because they wanted to see abortion up to nine months. Suburban men and women that voted for Joe Biden, it wasn't because they wanted to see an open border uh, down south. The suburban men and women that voted for Joe Biden, it wasn't because they wanted to see inflation and high taxes and and uh, wanted their bank accounts to be looked at if you make a deposit of $600 or a transaction of $600 or more. That's not why they voted for him. And so as we get in this hyper-politicized uh, environment, you got to understand that most people are not hyper-politicized. They literally vote by, I used to have a neighbor and he said, I voted for this guy because during his administration, I made more money than I ever made in my life. That was his, that was his uh, reason. He didn't care about pro-life, pro-choice. He didn't care about any of it. All he said was, all I know is during that time period, I made a lot of money. That's why I voted for him. Look, that's the majority of folks. We get hyper-politicized about this, but the vast majority of folks are just saying, hey, what's my bank account look like? Are my kids safe? Where can we go? So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more to you next week.